Good morning. Good morning again. Konnichiwa futatabi. Watashi wa nihongo henasemasen. This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, here now. If you are a regular listener of the Andrew Lake Podcast, please share your favourite episode as this will help me find my audience. It will help to find the people who are ready to hear what we are talking about here. And today I'd like to talk about fear. And as we do with our discussions, I'd like to talk about it comprehensively. I'd like to talk about it as a discussion of the different things of its components, its origins, its dynamics, its implications. And fear is a big one. There is so much to fear. It's really quite fundamental. It's one of those mountains that it's really hard to know quite really where to begin. And for today's Discussion. I thought we'd look at it from the eyes of the child. What is the child's biggest fear? What is the child's worst nightmare? And I was contemplating this after seeing a child who was the child of a friend of mine and just watching this child and how it was playing and how it was interacting with the environment and the other people that were around and its parents, its adults, its mummy, its daddy. And of course we can say, well, do we really want to leap to conclusions about childhood conditioning as to what they mean for us now as adults? Of course, sometimes we do have to be sceptical of that. Sometimes we do have to point out far-reaching implications as simply a little bit too far-fetched. But that's not to say that there isn't something quite rewarding in simply observing children, simply observing childhood and taking a look at childhood. And maybe the implications, well, you can draw for yourself, you can see for yourself. And of course, I'll share some of my ideas I was watching this child and, well, it was a new place that the child had never really been to because it was visiting friends. Friends visiting friends sort of thing. It was a social gathering in someone's new house. And the child came in and did basically what a child normally does. and Just got busy being a child. Got busy doing what children do. And what do children do? Well... All sorts of things. Children look around, they play with things, they climb on things, they put things in their mouth, they pick things up, they shake things, they look at you, they try and give you things, they try and take things off you, they make noises, all sorts of things. This is sort of just A, B, C child sort of thing. 
And the mother, and also the host of the house, was sort of realising a few minutes after the children, the child had arrived, that, well, there's actually some things in this house which might not make it childproof. Have you ever heard of this phrase, childproof? You probably have. Is this house childproof? Now, the idea there is that, well, there's nothing around that the child is going to pick up and put in their mouth and poison them. Basically, that's what childproof means. There are no real dangers, so the child can go about being a child, doing its thing, without the parents or the adults really having to worry too much. And the host sort of went around and thought, okay, well, it'll only take a few minutes. How do we make this house childproof? And he picked up some, I guess you call it bug, bug bombs, cockroach bombs, or sort of like these little chemical things that are designed to keep the bugs away. And in fact, I believe, I believe the child had even actually picked one of these up and that's what had triggered this thing of, oh, I just realized this house isn't childproof. And the adult takes that off them. And that, that's an example of something that's lying around that can actually poison the child. So the adult goes around and then he starts looking at other things like, what else could a child do? Is there certain bits of glass or certain bits of furniture that might fall or... All sorts of things. And he found this stack of knives in the kitchen. And it was right on the edge and it was just sort of in reach of the child. And it could have been, well, this is what he was thinking when he moved it off. He said, well, I don't want that knife falling down or that stack of knives falling down onto the child. And can you imagine that? What a what a scary thought. A whole, a whole, ba- a whole bunch of sharp knives falling onto a child. You definitely want to have that moved in from the bench. And then also, also there was, of course, this very funny moment where the, the child ran into the kitchen and immediately just turned on the stove, full bore. It was a gas stove. And we sort of thought, <laughs> typical child immediately going for the most dangerous thing. And of course, you can imagine this child just turning it on and lighting the switch and then boom, the whole place goes up in flames. That's the image that goes into the adult's head when they see that. Of course, the child has no idea. The child just thinks, oh, that's a funny thing. What does that do? I'll give that a twist. It looks like the sort of thing that wants to be twisted. And usually a gas stove knob does look like that. (laughs) Funnily enough, strange how that is, isn't it? And the child was fast enough to pick that up and see that that's what that's for. That thing that there, that's for, is for that thing. That is for twisting. That's a twisting thing. I can see it as it is there. It is. Twist thing. Very good. Better twist it then. For twisting, better twist. <laughs> And really, there are all sorts of things. There are all sorts of things in the house and around the home that is child dangerous, dangerous to the child, not child friendly. And yet, it's these things which are really, in so many ways, not even close to the most dangerous thing 
to a child. In fact, even not just the most dangerous thing to a child, but the most fearful thing to a child. And I'm sure you can guess what it is. I'm sure you know by the way I'm emphasizing how big and how important it is that you can see what I'm thinking. You can see what I've got in mind. Because let's say, let's say we put it this way. Let's take all of the adults out of the room and leave just the child there. And we just have the environment just as it is. Now compare how dangerous that is to if we have the same environment, the same room, and we just introduce the parent or just one adult. How much change has there been in the child's phenomenological experience, in their immediate experience, in their immediate life conditions between being in a room with no one and in a room with an adult. And I think with that illustration, you can see that the most dangerous thing to the child is the adult. Look at how much more power the adult has over the child's experiential unfolding than a knife on a bench. Think of how ever-present the role of the adult is. Now, if you were to remove the adult... This becomes apparent in so many ways because for a child to be without an adult is rather stressful, very stressful. And you can see this. You can see this when get kids get dropped off at preschool. They burst into tears and they're howling, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy. It's this huge tragedy. It's this huge emotional tearing. It's this terrible cataclysm of events. It's the end of the world in so many ways. And it is the end of the world. Because the child is so dependent on the adult. Dependent for food, for shelter, for safety, for being protected, for emotional well-being for sense of touch, for sense of connection, for sense of warmth, for all sorts of things that, of course, the child can't articulate, the child has no idea about, and yet they're fundamental. They're fundamental. And the ability of the adult to influence the child's ever-present experience is, is just gargantuan. It's just so far outrageously ranging. There's so much there's so much power there. It's almost like it's an infinite amount of power. When someone depends on you completely, well that person has you. That person is 
completely all over you. And some parents actually, well, they do hit their children. They actually smack them. And they actually cause actual pain, real pain. This kind of punishment which is obtusely over the top and just frankly, well, it's a kind of abuse. Now, you can say, well, Dosti, you don't have kids. What do you know about raising kids? What do you know about corporal punishment? Kids need discipline. Have you heard that phrase before? Kids need discipline. Well, actually, I'd like to wager that that's wrong. And of course, I don't know in some ways what I'm talking about because I don't have kids. But I'd like to bet that that's wrong. And I'd like to, as we continue this discussion, actually talk about some of the other options as to how you can understand this and what it actually means for you and me as adults as well. So we will tie that back in. Did you ever get punished as a kid? Do you remember when you were punished? Did your parents punish you? There are some sort of common ones in my culture. I don't know if they were common to my friends. Go and sit in the car under your seatbelt. Oh, that was a big one. If we were playing or we were out and about, mum would say, if you don't behave, I'll make you go and sit in the car. And if it was something really bad, if she really wanted to get me, if she really wanted to make it a, a, a heavy threat, then she'd say, under the seatbelt. And nothing seemed more of a punishment than sitting in the car under the seatbelt while everyone else was playing, while everyone was out, out at the social event. That was a heavy one. I don't know if I ever got that one. I think I was only ever threatened to have that one. And what about this one? Go and stand in the corner. So you go, you face the corner, you put your nose up between two walls and then you you have to stay there until your mum says, okay, that's enough. I had that one a couple of times. What does that say about consciousness? What does that say about turning in? What does that say about human connection? It definitely changed my mood. There's no doubt about that. The tone of voice that I had, or the tone of voice also that my mother had after that had happened, after I'd had my time standing in the corner, was definitely something different. It was more like... Well, it's quite hard to put into words, isn't it? Because when you're told to go and stand in the corner... The words imply and the tone of voice implies that you're in trouble. This is a punishment. You are not going to enjoy this. And I think maybe as a kid, (laughs) there actually were times when I got something out of standing in the corner. I do, now that I'm, I'm sort of dwelling on it, I'm starting to come back to it. I'm starting to start to think, well, there's actually something quite peaceful in this. (laughs) And of course, even from an early child, I mean, there are a lot of things in my childhood that sort of indicated that I was pointing towards a meditative life, which of course I didn't know until many years later. 
And maybe this, this is one of them. It's like, go and stand in the corner. That's a kind of meditation. And yet it was, it was given to me as this real punishment, as this, real, this really dark thing. And then after, when the time was up, the tone of voice was like, ah, okay, so now you are all better. It was sort of like, now you're okay. Now we're even. And it's like, oh. So go and stand in the corner. Or even when you're a little bit older, grounded. You're not going to the party. You're not going out with your friends. We call that being grounded. You can't go out and play in the street. That was my worst nightmare. I always wanted to play outdoors. Or this one, go to bed early. For many childhood moments, families, for many families, the children's bedtime is a point of contention, a point of debate, an ever-present issue within the family. When is bedtime? Or there's this one, go, in a, go and sit in a chair and do, don't move. That's similar to go and stand in the corner. Or, or, or even further, sit on your hands. Now, this one I actually remember having some kids get in class at school. So school punishments are always a little bit different to the home punishments. But this one, sit on your hands, it's quite, it's quite strange, isn't it? Sit on your hands. Let me try it. Sitting on my hands now. Yeah, well, the funny thing is that the teacher also can't let the child do that for too long because they get, you know, squashed hands. And there's always that thing of, oh, oh, Tommy had to sit on his hands and he pulls his hands out after he's done it and they're all red. And you think, oh, poor Tommy, he had to do that. And the teacher says, well, now have you learned your lesson? See, there's an, there's an effect there. There's an immediate experiential effect that's trying to be made there. And you know what? There's something that all these punishments have in common. There's something that they all do. There's just this one principle at play here. And I'll tell you what it is. It's unfreedom. It's restraint. It is that you cannot do the things that you were doing before. There is a wall around you. There's a restriction on you. And this is non-freedom, fundamentally. And it comes from fear. It comes from fear that the child is going to hurt themselves. Now, why is it that a parent says to a child, oh, you can't do that? Or the child says, daddy, can I do this? And the parent says, no, you can't do that. You'll hurt yourself. Well, that's why. Because you might hurt yourself. You might hurt yourself. These are the so-called reasons for why you have an unfreedom put on you. Now, unfreedom as a child is not just in your punishments not just in the things you've done wrong, but it's also just generally something that happens. And really, I think, I think there's something in 
the unpredictability of people. And you'll see how this ties into everything as we are as adults, or everything we are as adults. Because when someone is unpredictable, when someone is uncontrollable, well then things that can happen that are out of control. And for a parent, the stakes are high. Remember that this is not, this is not entirely an imbalanced game in some ways. It's not as though the parent doesn't have skin in the game. It's not as though they're not under their own weights in so many ways. Because the, the parent is also ruled by fear. They're also ruled by the fear of unpredictability or the fear of how things can go wrong. The fear of how a child can hurt themselves. Like the fear, like the fear of a child having knives fall onto it. Now that that's worse than actually having the knives fall onto them themselves. Any parent who sees knives falling onto their child without thinking in an instant would put their hands out to protect the child. They wouldn't have to think of it. It would be completely intuitive because there's a deep push there. There's a deep fear, not the child, rather me, or rather turn the gas stove on. I'd rather have myself blown up by the gas stove than my child. And that's fear. That imagery runs through the adult as a kind of shock, as a kind of tension. Can you imagine anything more terrifying than a child in danger? A child that is going to be hurt by something or hit by something or fall off something. And that's, well, I guess that's one of the reasons why adults do these these things to children. I guess it's why they have these sort of restrictions on them. And it can be that sometimes a particular adult and a particular child gets up a kind of relationship bubble. And this is really this is really bad when it happens and it's quite difficult to pop because there's no one that can pop it. There's no one that can burst that bubble. And what I mean by a relationship bubble is when you're sort of stuck between the two of you and you're sort of going back and forth. And it's the same thing over and over again, but in a subtle sort of way, it sounds like something different. Don't jump on the couch. Don't push near the TV. No, don't go out there. No, don't stand on that. No, be careful with that. No, put that down. No, sit here. This sort of string of commands, they may, they may all sound like little things that are different, but really they're all the same sort of thing. They're, re- they're really all the same thing, which is just restriction. And this bubble is actually something that, well, it de- can develop between a particular adult and a particular child. Now, if you're in a family of a few children, then it will be one adult and one of the children that will get this, that will have this happen. And the sort of the other children will sort of look along and 
try and learn from the outside. And there's no one that can really say, hey, he just needs to run around or, hey, do you really think it's so bad that he stands on the sofa? Or, hey, do you really think he's actually going to knock the TV over? There's no one that can burst that bubble. There's no one that can interject. Now, the child, the child actually intuitively knows that freedom is the best thing. A child just wants freedom. A child just wants to play. A child just wants to go to the party. I just want to spend time doing my things. How often do children say those things? It's freedom. It's freedom that's all they want. And they know that they should be granted it, which is why they're hurt when they're restricted. But they can't stand up and say that. They can't stand up for themselves because they can't articulate it. They don't know these things. They're just children. They can't say, okay, mum, well, is it really so bad if I jump on the couch? Because they can't reason like that. And there's no one that can actually interject into the relationship, such as another family member or a friend or someone who's watching along or someone who's nearby. Because whose business is it? It's none of your business how I run my family. And in fact, now would be a good point in the conversation for me to remind you that the things we're saying here, you can't hear them in a different context. These sorts of things are not discussed between family members. This sort of perception can't be articulated in real time. You have to hear it somewhere. You have to hear someone else saying it, and then you have to think about it for yourself and then see it for yourself. So keep that in mind. This conversation is unique. But then also to continue the point about the child not being able to reason with the adult, what happens is that as they grow older, they grow the reasons. They learn how to have the reasons. They grow the ability to actually push back. And from the ages of eight to nine, when their rational cognitive abilities are coming forward, they start to say, well, there's this outrage. Like, what what on earth are you thinking? Why aren't you letting me do these things? It's so unfair. And this is the beginning of a brooding that goes on to adolescence. It can go on to adolescence. And once it reaches adolescence, well, it's too late because now you've got this whole explosion of sexuality opening up. Now you've got all these hormones, testosterone, emotions, and you've got more responsibilities and the complexities of the freedoms are so much more difficult, so much more vast. Now it's not just, oh, can I jump on the couch? Now it's, can I drive the car somewhere? Can I drive the car out somewhere where you won't know where I'm driving it? And you won't know when I'm coming back. Now how's, how's that for upping the stakes of freedom? You see how now how it rolls into those later years and sort of blurs into the adult years. 
And we do need to move our discussion forward. We need to take this out of just the childhood paradigm, just the sort of reflective paradigm and the family paradigm. And so to put this into a more sort of back back towards a more fundamental way and a more broadly speaking way, we can ask, well, instead of saying what's a child's biggest threat or a child's worst nightmare, we can just say, well, what's a person's worst nightmare? What's a person's biggest threat? What's the most dangerous thing in the world? What would you say is the most dangerous thing in the world? And if we can ask this question with our background of the child in the room by itself with different objects around and the child in the room with an adult, then we can easily say that, well, the most dangerous thing in the world is another person. The most dangerous thing in the world is other people. Imagine a world without people and it's just you and the objects. Sounds like some sort of post-apocalyptic movie, right? (laughs) Now, of course, we all live in a kind of network with each other. So you by yourself in society without other people would be a collapse of the systems that we all depend on which is why it's an apocalyptic movie. (laughs) It's an apocalyptic image. But if we look at other people as a danger, well, you can see, look at their predictability, or rather their unpredictability. How many different things can a human being do? What is possible for one human being to do to another? And of course, with only an elementary understanding of history, we can know that humans do the most ghastly things to one another. Humans do the most frightening things. And this is fundamental. This is not just some social anxiety condition. Like you might say, You might say, oh, I'm not very good at socializing, or I have social anxiety, or I get nervous in big crowds. And I'd say, well, (laughs) that's not you, that's everyone. That's everyone who's got half a brain as to what's possible. (laughs) Now, if you're an airhead, well, that's a bit different. (laughs) Well, we're leaving those out of the equation. I mean, we always, we pretty much always leave those people out of the equation. We're not talking about that. They're talking about you and me. (laughs) So if you say to yourself you have social anxiety, I would actually say that actually you're, you're, you're intuiting something much more fundamental, which is the danger of other people. And that is fear. And it's not even that... They're violent. It's not even that, of course, humans are violent and physically aggressive. Sure, sure, yes, that's granted. That's part of it. 
But really, in our developed world, that doesn't happen so much. If you're in a first world country, if you're in some developing country, well, then it's different. But in a first world country, physical violence is really not even the most pertinent one. It's not the most obvious one. It's actually emotional. It's emotional aggression, which is the feeling that you're going to get. It's the feeling that someone can give you. And they can give such bad feelings by being insulted, by being hurt. Anger, fury, judgment, shame, guilt, humiliation. All these things are a kind of emotional aggression. All these things are feelings that we don't want to have, which can be given to us because of the way we are interacting with others, because of the kind of... What's the word for it? The kind of well, well, what's the what's the childhood equivalent? And and here's where it really gets tricky when we look at this. the ch- The childhood equivalent is well, the adult is afraid that the child is going to hurt themselves, right? So that would mean that the most painful or some of the most painful emotional hurts is that you would cause emotional hurt to someone else. You don't want to hurt anyone. You don't want to make anyone feel bad. That is quite fundamental. That is quite deep. And there is something in human nature that knows, well, we don't want to hurt one another. And this is fundamental right down even to the social sphere. And to put it in a bland example, this is why it's so scary to offend someone. You offended me. Which is exactly that. You have said something which makes me feel really bad and I'm feeling really bad because of you. And that is dangerous. That is fearful. That is something that people just run for them, run from the hills from. And that's very different to trying to give someone a feeling like judging someone, like trying to put a feeling onto someone, like trying to put shame onto someone. Like if the person who was offended was really actually just trying to make someone else feel guilty or trying to say you should feel bad about that, it's not quite as bad as saying that Well, I actually do feel bad because of you. You've caused the bad feeling in someone else. 
And maybe this is, maybe all this is just my own take on it. Maybe there are, I mean, we've got, we've got the whole human race out there. We've got the whole spectrum, right? Okay. So we've got every variable on all of these somewhere out there. And who is to say what's more common and what's not? I don't know. We'd need to do a polling or some kind of test. We'd need to do some kind of inquiry to know, well, how do actually people work with these sorts of emotions and these feelings and what's more common and what's less common? And with every spectrum, we do have the outliers. You know, we have the sociopaths. We have the ones that are actually getting pleasure from causing pain in others. So there's another, there's another variable that comes up. There's another fundamental one. If we've talked about the physical world with objects and violence, we've talked about the emotional world of feelings, now we come to the world of words, the world of speech. And you can see this in children when they're told not to say certain things. And a child is always trying to work out what to say. They're always trying to work out what the right thing to say is. To get what they need, to get what they want. And they're learning that from their environment, from their behaviours, from their feelings. It's all connected in and out on one and the other. And this, for all of us, stems into adulthood. Our fear our feelings and our environment dictates what we say, how we say it. And it is a little bit of the chicken or the egg because words can induce emotions and they can induce certain object processes and so on. And it's all a bit upside down depending on where you start. But restrictions on the speech all comes back to fear. It always comes back to fear. And it's fear of another person. It's a fear of what another person will say. It's fear of what someone will say about you. So those are a few thoughts to do with fear. And the solution, the way forward, is to have a two-pronged approach. And the best thing I can recommend for developing this two-pronged approach is exposure work. Now, exposure work is a a deep field. It's a very deep field in therapy and psychology, and it also branches over into awareness techniques. So in a nutshell, exposure work goes like this. You're afraid of snakes. So what we're going to do is we're going to get you to stand in front of a snake, and we're going to slowly move you forward and slowly move you back and see how you feel and actually slowly introduce you to that fear. 
slowly get you warming to that fear and understanding that fear by exposing you to that fear. So the two prongs are, one, the social sphere. So this is the child in the room with one parent, not the child in the room by themselves. And the social sphere, through exposure, means talking to people who are different to you, talking to people who are going to give you different ideas, noticing when people say things that offend you, noticing when people say things that hurt you, because that's actually an opening up. That's, a, that's an actual exposure to something you need to warm to. That's an exposure to your fear. When someone says something and you're offended by it, that's actually you coming a little bit close to a snake. Now, of course, for, oh God, how many? Like, this is, this is the thing that you're not conscious of this. You're not aware of this. This is why this is such an explosive insight. This is why it's so important to understand. Because most people are walking around with their fear, not with the idea that, oh, this is something I'm le- I can learn from. This is something I can gain from. But no, it's actually something that needs to be squashed, needs to be put an end to. So that's one of the prongs, is exposure work through the social sphere. And then the other side of it is self-knowledge. This is where you actually turn, you turn in and you look at, like, why is it that that offended me? What are my fears? Why is it that I had this feeling? What is it exactly that triggered the feeling in me? And self-knowledge and the social sphere are two very broad things. So in a sense, this is not a... It's still a broad solution. I mean, we're talking about fear, which is so gargantuanly broad that we have to break it down into still broad but smaller solutions. So exposure work is one. Self-knowledge is the other, and the social sphere is the other. So the two prongs are the social sphere and self-knowledge. And the work is exposure work, which we'll be talking about more in the future. We'll have different conversations about that later on. And you can see what it's like if you have only one of these things. If you only have self-knowledge... You're not really, like if you just, if you just go in a way in a cave and meditate and you just do self-knowledge, well, actually then you do learn certain things about how you interact with the world and with other people. And a lot of people who go away and meditate come back as very charismatic and very alive and have these incredible relationships and have these incredible impressions on all of the people around them. So it's not to say that self-knowledge alone and contemplation alone doesn't work. It does work. But to really get both sides of it, you want to also have the social sphere work. Now, the social sphere work by itself doesn't work because then you're just 
going from one relationship to another. You're hopping from one to the other. You're just going in and out of these conversations. And actually, it's possible to figure out ways to navigate the social sphere without it really penetrating into your being. This is where you sort of walk through life where you say, oh, that person's wrong, or you dismiss that person. You're sort of closed to that person or that type of person, or you categorize people. You say, oh, that person's that type of person, so I just don't listen much. I don't care much to what they say. I don't care much what they say. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't offend me. You haven't offended me. I'm just not caring. It's no issue for me, this kind of attitude. Now, that's not penetrating into your being. That's not having you open up to actually confronting your fears, opening up to freedom, which is why you must have self-knowledge, you must have self-inquiry, contemplation, self-understanding and meditation. So the prescription is two at once, both at once, two-pronged approach, meditation and social sphere work. And if you have to choose just one of them, meditation is it. Self-knowledge is it. Self-knowledge is king, right? You get, you get that, right? I don't need to tell you that. That's, that's old news. That's old news. That is, that, is, that is so old, man. Get with the times. Can't you talk about something a little bit more up-to-date than self-knowledge? <laughs> well, it is still up-to-date because... Brilliancy or genius ideas, or even that doesn't go far enough. We should say the the truest nature of human wisdom is timeless. And that's why it's quite safe to say that self-knowledge is king. So those are some thoughts. It's really just a beginning. It's really just the start of cracking this giant egg, birthing this giant egg, which is fear and freedom. And of course, we'll come back to it again and again in lots of different ways from lots of different angles. But at least that's a start. So I hope you've enjoyed these words. Thank you very much for tuning in. Have a beautiful day. And that's all I have to say for now.